0: In Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, and the other, a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted.
1: Everybody loves stories. And you can tell a good story by the way that it lasts And you can tell another generation, another generation, and another generation, the story still grips you because it's a great story. There was no greater storyteller ever than the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's all sorts of things that you might have heard in that short reading and thought, well, I don't know anybody who's perhaps even Jewish, but I certainly don't know a Pharisee. I don't know anybody from the HMRC. And this whole idea of going to a temple and banging your breast, it all sounds really, really strange. But the powerful thing about the stories that Jesus tells are that they are words from the living God of heaven to us. And there is truth, there is life-giving truth in these stories for us. It's just as relevant for us today as they were 2,000 years ago when Jesus first told this parable. And here's why it's relevant. Even if the Pharisee tax collector temple thing doesn't really ring true, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but I wonder how many people would like to know, how can I know I'm right with God? How can I draw near to God? How can I come to God? That question is as relevant and as important today as it was 2,000 years ago. And that's why Jesus told this story. In the context of a section talking about prayer, which is why Jesus tells a parable about people going to pray. But the specific thing that he wants us to know is in verse 9, if you've got a Bible, some were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. That's the key question. Even if perhaps you have never prayed before ever in your life... There will perhaps have been some time when you have thought, if there is a God somewhere, how do I draw near to him? How can I speak to him? How can I come near him? That's why Jesus told this parable. And the story is really simple. We've got two very different men who ask two or say two very different prayers, and they have two very different results. And when you look at the men, they couldn't be more different. In Jesus' day, the Pharisees were the super strict religious types. Maybe you think you know some. Um, These guys take it to another level. They are the uber strict rule keepers. Not only did they think they could keep all of the laws in the Jewish Bible, they also added loads more laws that they needed to keep as well, all to prove how Jewish and faithful and godly they were. And they love to do it for everybody else to see. You may know a Christian and You know they're a Christian, but they don't shout about it all the time. (laughs) These Pharisees were very different. They wanted every single person to not only know, but to see them practicing their religion. And it meant that everybody expected this Pharisee to be in the temple to pray. He's the guy you expect to be there. Tax collector's not. A tax collector could not have been more different. If you read through Luke's Gospel, tax collectors keep reappearing, and basically they're the bad guys as far as the Jews are concerned. They're the bad guys not just because 2,000 years ago, people were as reluctant to part with their money to pay taxes as they are today. That's true, but that's not the big problem. And not only is the problem that the way tax collectors worked is that this man would have been a Jew, and he had been giving the taxes to the Roman Empire this non-Jewish nation that had taken over the nation of Israel. So he's a traitor as well. But even that's not the big problem with the tax collector. The way a tax collector earned their money was they overcharged and skimmed money off the top to line their own pockets. So if you saw a wealthy tax collector in Israel, not only would you think of them as a traitor, but they were rich because you were poor. So you've got Pharisees who kept the law and made extra laws so that everybody would know they were righteous. And then you've got tax collectors who broke the law and cheated their own nationals. It couldn't possibly have been more different. And the tax collector is the very last person you would expect to be stepping into a temple to pray to God. But here they are, and they pray two very different prayers. And what we need to see is how what they prayed showed what was in their heart. Matthew explained at the beginning, the key question about this passage is how can we draw near to God? And, and for the Pharisee, it's all about him. He, yeah, he addresses his prayer to God. That's the first word he says in his prayer. But if you look, everything else is all about him. In fact, you could retranslate uh, verse 11 uh, and say that the Pharisee stood and prayed to himself. Which is basically what he did. He recited all the things that were good about him. God, I thank you that, I thank you that. And in verse 11, there's two things this guy does. Number one, he plays the comparative morality game. Dear God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Now, most of us have played that card at some time. You might not have done it in the way you think about God, but I bet you did it when you were a teenager with your homework. I bet at some point, your mum and dad said to you, Shouldn't you be doing a little bit more for that geography assignment? And you said, Well, I've done more than John and Michael, I'm sure it's fine. <laughs> and if you're a real pro at the comparative morality game, you know that the way to win every time is to compare yourself with somebody who's worse than you. That's exactly what this man does. He doesn't compare himself with somebody who's, who's really loving, who's really kind, who's really sacrificial compares himself with robbers, evildoers, and adulterers. Now, don't mishear me. Of course, it is right not to be a thief and to be a faithful husband, but is that really the standard that we think God is looking at when he looks at the human heart? And in verse 12, he shifts gears. He goes from comparative morality to performance. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. Now, that perhaps doesn't mean a great deal to you because maybe it's the first time in your church you've never fasted before. Tithing, giving a tenth, that's new. Let me set it in its context. Jews only had to fast once a year. This guy does it twice a week. And they only had to tithe to give a tenth of what they had on some of their crops, not on everything. So here's, here's this Pharisee bragging about the fact that he is way better than everybody else. This is his basis for drawing near to God. He's better than the worst of people, and he's doing more than his fair share. So, dear God, please will you accept me? Now, that sounds a bit more contemporary, doesn't it? In fact, thinking about this passage this week, I was reminded of little Jack Horner, who sat in the corner eating his Christmas pie. He put in his thumb and pulled out a plum and said, What a good boy am I quite a lot like the pharisee isn't it the problem with the pharisee was that he didn't recognize the person that he was standing before and that makes all the difference in the world i'm building a shed with some friends at the moment and uh, at the end of a hot day in the sun i'm not a pretty picture My T-shirt is soaked in sweat. My shorts are covered in sawdust and grime. I do not smell like a bunch of roses. Now, you imagine, rewinding just a few months, that I found out that Her Majesty the Queen was coming to a jubilee party in our street that evening. If I knew that, I wouldn't spend the whole day working right up until the final minute she arrived, just... Working and sweating and working and sweating and then strolling up to her majesty looking like I would do. You'd finish early, all of us would. You'd you'd get changed, you'd have a shower, you'd make yourself look as good as you possibly could because who you are meeting matters. And that brings us to the problem. Because in this parable, the Pharisee is meeting the God of heaven and earth as he prays. About 600 years before Jesus was here telling this story. There was a prophet called Isaiah who had a vision of God, just a glimpse into who God is and what it's like to be near him. And as he saw the glory of God fill the heavens, Isaiah was awestruck. He saw angelic beings circling God, calling to one another, holy, holy Holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, so this is just the sound of the angels who are worshipping God, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. That's the God of heaven and earth. That is the God who is not only without sin, he is so perfect and holy that sin cannot come anywhere near him. He is without beginning or end. His power is inexhaustible. His glory is immeasurable. His majesty is indescribable. How does Isaiah respond? He doesn't start with his comparative morality list. He doesn't put down his CV of all of his good deeds. He cried out. Woe to me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. So now the question is, well, who are we? We're just like Isaiah. We are men and women and boys and girls uniquely made in the image of, of God, and the Bible has such a precious way of helping us understand one another that is infinitely more wonderful than any other kind of worldview you may hear. But ever since our first parents disobeyed God, all of us have inherited their sinful nature. And a little later in his book, Isaiah would write, All of us have become like one who is unclean. And all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf. And like the wind, our sins sweep us away. You see, if you stand before the holy, holy, holy God, what matters isn't what you can offer. See, you recognize you have nothing to offer. And all any of us can do is plead for the mercy of God. And that's exactly what this tax collector does. He knows that he can't make himself presentable. He knows that he can't earn anything. He, in fact, he stands away from the public gaze. He, he doesn't even look up to heaven. So for a Jew, that's the way you would normally pray, visually looking at the person symbolically that you're praying to. He doesn't do it. He beats his, his breast, which is an unusual thing for us. But for a Jew, it's a sign of just despair and brokenness. He knows he's not worthy, and so he prays. Verse 13, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That is all any of us can pray when we first come to God. You can't negotiate. You can't mitigate. You can't haggle. Simply plead for mercy. And we saw, didn't we, that the Pharisee singled himself out. He said, Oh, thank you that I'm not like any of those. I'm better. Well, we lose a little bit of in our translation, but the tax collector does the same thing. He singles himself out as well. Literally, he says, God, have mercy on me, the sinner. The tax collector had realized that the only way he compares himself is by realizing he's the only one whose sins he needs to be concerned with. He realized who God is and what God requires. He's been brought to know something of what Isaiah saw about who God is and how awesome he is. And all he can say is, I'm the sinner who needs mercy. That's what Liberty Jude and Anna have come to realize. That's what I have come to know. It's what every Christian in this room has come to know. And we are looking forward to hearing their stories of how they've come. To say that prayer to God in different ways that understood that they, like I, am the sinner. And what's wonderful for them, for everybody who trusts in Jesus, even for this tax collector in the story, is the response and the answer because verse 14 shows us those two different results. You got all this do gooding, rule keeping Pharisee. His prayer wasn't hurt. Literally, God didn't answer his prayer. His sin was still unforgiven. But the tax collector, verse 14, went home justified before God. Justified is a word that comes from the law courts. It's when a judge looks at somebody and makes that final declaration that you are not guilty. You might remember it as just as if I'd. Now, sometimes people say, just as if I'd never sinned. Justification is better than that. Justification is just as if I'd always obeyed. That's what the God of heaven from the throne room, the courtroom of heaven says of this tax collector. And the wonderful thing about that is that there's no partial justification. You are completely declared righteous by god and it's not it's not on probation it's not we'll see how it goes and maybe we'll stop you being justified once the god of heaven justifies this tax collector is forever justified his guilt was washed away all of his shame completely covered all of his sin god deliberately never God can't forget. He chooses never to remember. Which sounds amazing, doesn't it? But I know it's hot. If you're still thinking, you're probably thinking, how could God do that? Because the tax collector's a genuine sinner. Like, he sinned against other people, cheated them out of his money, at least, and all the other things that he would have done. But the Bible tells us all sin is ultimately against God. So if God's a holy God... And he's a just God. How is it possible for him just to forgive all of this sin? As he's done for Anna and Liberty and Jude. As he's done for me. Well, you have to go back to verse 13 for the answer. Because we read what the tax collector said. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And when Luke originally wrote that, have mercy is an unusual verb. There's another way of saying have mercy in the Bible and Luke doesn't use it. The only other time in the Bible where this is used is in Hebrews chapter 2. And there we're told that Jesus, the eternal Son of God, had to be made like them. That's you and me, human beings. Fully human in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. Here we go. And that he might make atonement. There it is. It's the same verb. As we've got, have mercy. Make atonement for the sins of the people. Now again, you may never have heard of the word atonement. That's fine. For the Jews, atonement was one of the most important ideas and words in all of what it meant to be Jewish. Because once a year, on the day of atonement, a sacrifice would be made. And when that sacrifice was made, that shed blood was like a shield a sponge absorbing the judgment of God against the sins of the people so that the judgment having been paid, God could now be gracious and merciful and loving to the people despite their sin because he dealt with their sin. Now, you think about that. If people are the ones doing the sinning, animals can't be the one that pay the price. That's just not fair. And you're right because the animals weren't the final solution. The animals were the signpost to the only solution. The solution that shows us how God can have mercy on sinners like me. This is love. Not that we loved God. But that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. <clears throat> Lots of people like to say that God is a God of love. And he is. But that love is costly. Very, very Costly, because it had to deal with our sin. Jesus is not only a literal human in history, but he is the son of God who came into the world, not just to live the perfect life that none of us could live. He came to die, not just to die on a cross to give us an example of how much God loves us. He came to die to take our punishment, to be that covering, so that God, having dealt with our sin, could now love us and show his mercy and grace to us. And the wonderful thing about this parable is it reminds us how all of that can be true for any of us tonight. What did the tax collector do? He prayed, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That was it. With a, a genuine heart, he prayed that prayer. And what are we told? He went home justified. That could be your story tonight as well. You could leave this place having asked God to have mercy on you and know that you are right with God. It's a gift. We can't earn it. There's no comparative morality. There's no performance. It is a gift given to all who will willingly say, God, have mercy on me, the sinner.